You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, we are exploring the evolution of quant investing with Dr. Jonathan Briggs. Jonathan holds a PhD in mechanical engineering and applied mechanics from UPenn and has had a long career of researching and developing investing techniques for pension funds such as CPP Investment Board. He is now the CIO of his own fund, Delphia, where they are implementing techniques developed from his research. In this episode, we discuss the basics of quant investing, the commoditization of the approach and what has led to a quote-unquote quant winter, how size and scale applies to the strategies, how machine learning is playing a bigger role in the quant approach, the economic framework Jonathan has devised after decades of research, and much, much more. This was a very interesting look into the Moneyball approach of investing. Does it invalidate fundamentals? Let's find out in this discussion with the very thoughtful Dr. Jonathan Briggs. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie, and today I am so excited to have on the show Dr. Jonathan Briggs. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Doctor, not a real doctor. Then, if you got a PhD, you're a doctor to me. You know, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Speaking of which, you've had an incredible career, and maybe talk to us about that PhD and then how you found your way into finance and how you've started to develop the approach you have today. So let's start all the way back and go from there. Go to the origin story. Huh? So that's a the PhD is I was interested in applied math engineering. So that was my first love, which was. Obviously, why you go into a graduate program to begin with. And in particular, I was focusing on something called control theory, which is a set of theories about how you manage to make systems do what you want them to do. So how do you make an aircraft behave the way you want it to do? How do you make SpaceX you know, land vertically on a small ship? So that's all control theory or Tesla, how it self-drives. So that was, that was my passion. There was certainly, obviously, life never goes in one particular direction. You never ended up in the spot you thought you would. And, and that was true with me. And so... For personal reasons, we had to move close to my wife's family after I graduated. And that turned out to be San Francisco, California. And while I was there, I just basically had to look for a job. So any plans of going on into academia put by the wayside, and I had to find some place to use my talents and get paid effectively. So when I showed up in San Francisco, there was there were only certain numbers of places that were hiring. Remember, it was, it was pretty close to the dot-com bubble. So tech really wasn't the place to go. And it turned out that finance was hiring, in particular. Charles Schwab was looking to hire folks with a background similar to mine to help them build um, what essentially turned out to be a, a robo-advisor. And so folks like myself can certainly help with some of the, the applied math that goes into building such things. Funny story is I don't think it was a success early days, but, but you know, it, was, it was a bit before its time, but has, I think, had some success going forward. But, but the person who hired me was looking specifically for somebody with a PhD with an applied math background. That was my first entry point into, into actual finance where I learned about stocks and bonds, which I had no exposure to up until that point. Literally, I'd, I'd never invested a penny in my life. And there was one person in particular at Schwab by the name of Jim Peterson, who he's still there. He's actually the CIO of Charles Schwab Investment Advisory, a great human being. He took me under his wing and started to teach me about you know, the Journal of Finance and quantitative investing. So it included things like Fama French and Momentum and things like that. And, and so that was my first introduction. I spent about four years at Schwab as I said, helping to build this robo-advisory. I got exposed to their Schwab equity ratings. Some of you may have seen that. It was pretty clear to me that, that it was time to move on. 
And I would say the giant in the industry at that time was out of San Francisco. It was a place called Barclays Global Investors. They had pioneered the quantitative investing process. We literally written the book on it. But there's a book by Gerald and Khan where Barclays Global Investors can talk about at some point, perhaps. And primarily, they built an incredible business off of quantitative equity world, which was they had basically gathered a ton of assets, would continue to gather assets over the next six years while I was there, and really won accolades for their, their performance over that period of time uh, using a quantitative approach. So to me, I think it was, was formative. That was like going and getting my next degree, so to speak, in, in quantitative asset management. And I worked with some of the, the brightest minds at the time in that space, uh, Colonel Richard Grinnell, Ron Kahn. Mark Britton Jones, Maury Wakett, Ken Cronin. These, these are all sort of names that became pinnacle in their career in quantitative investing until BlackRock acquired them in 2010. And my understanding was BlackRock really was interested in the, in the iShares business, which BGI had built along the side of its active investing strategies. And it just turned out, I think, to not be a place for me. Just, you know, it was a different culture, different utility function for the organization at that point. And, and so I wasn't the only one. There was a natural sort of a diaspora, I think, from BGI out of San Francisco at that point. So a recruiter called me out of the middle of nowhere. He's an interesting human being. He basically called me up and he said, Hey, I know what we made last year. I know your wife's name, your daughter's name. I know everything about you. There's this place called CPPIB that's recruiting a lot of talented folks. And I hung up on him literally. I thought this guy is a stalker. How could you possibly know this? Very odd approach. <laughs> Very odd approach. But what was hilarious is that he said, Okay. Trust me, go walk across the aisle to the head of the uh, global macro team and go ask him about me. Ask him, do you know Bob Shane? And I was like, so I went and I talked to him. It was Ken Croner at the time. He said, oh, yeah, he's a great guy. He helped, build, he helped BGI build from the ground up. So he ended up turning out to be legit, thank God. And yeah, so CPPIB was essentially, which is the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, was recruiting a bunch of talented folks across the world and bringing them on board in Canada to help build their investments internally. And then such began the journey. I started on the global macro team, which, which is a style of investing that essentially is betting economy versus economy through the various instruments. Bridgewater Associates is sort of, the, I think, the, the pinnacle of global macro investing. Most folks have probably heard of them. So I spent a few years working on the macro team. There were some changes going on on the equity side. And at some point, they reached out and asked me and said, hey, why don't you come be the head of the, uh, the quant equity research team? That was the beginning of my equity experience as a researcher in terms of actually doing what I would call forecasting of expected returns. That was a journey that was about eight years long. Talk to us about that pension experience, because as we were kind of discussing beforehand, they did a good job forecasting this gap, this demographic gap with the baby boomer generation and managing that quite well. So I'm I'm wondering if that is an isolated event, if the US pensions have followed suit, or if this is an anomaly as far as their strategy and, and execution. I'm not a pension consultant, so I don't really know the, the health of the average pension system in the world. But there are certain countries which have had the foresight to look ahead and say, you know, look, we have a demographic problem. We have a younger generation which isn't as large. We have a lot of excess requirements going forward for health and benefits. And so they, they set up a process to essentially do a wealth transfer, intergenerational wealth transfer to take care of you know, the other generation, their retirement. And, and CPPIB was certainly one of those incredibly insightful and, and long thinking, long range thinking in that, in that regard. And, and have collected assets over the last, well, I don't know, 15, 20 years to, uh, to address that. And, and they're an incredibly solid, you know, actuarially, I think they're well provisioned for the next 75 years. And, and 
they take those assets that they gather and they reinvest them on behalf of the people of Canada to um, to further the returns as much as possible. And you know, I think you know, something like Norway, I think, has done something very similar to some Middle Eastern countries. It's a remarkable decision to make by any society to, to invest that kind of energy to do that. So as I understand it, CPPIB has something like $600 billion they're managing. And it's understandable at that size that you are essentially, I mean, forced into finding systematic ways to invest, right? Because it's just the sheer size of it. So you can understand this effort to develop systematic investing and that approach. So I know we're going to get into that. I'd like to start with some pretty basic questions around systematic investing or quant investing for shorthand. Talk to us about what defines, say, a quality factor versus a value factor versus something like a momentum factor. And let's go from there. Yeah. In fact, when people talk about quantitative investing, they basically lean into this concept of value, quality, momentum, sort of the pillars. In fact, you know, AQR, which is now one of the preeminent quantitative investing shops, their founders published a bunch of articles related in the Journal of Finance, et cetera, on, on these types of behavioral ideas. But they go back quite, not behavioral, but these types of exposure ideas. And they go back quite far in time. So, so Fama French were the original you know, creators of the ideas of these broad cross-sectional exposures that explain returns. And, and what I mean by that is what they do is they take a group of companies, which you know, maybe it's the S&P 500 or, or the Russell 3000. And, and what they'll do is they'll essentially create a characteristic, which could be a ratio of or some, some quantity that basically describes something about a company. They then take these and they rank them across the entire set of companies that they're interested in looking at. So again, the S&P 500, the Russell 3000. And then these then describe a portfolio. So it's a process of transforming those, these quantities into a portfolio, which is very straightforward. And then they, they backtest it or they run it live. Now, it turns out that these three categories, they're very, you know, they become, they're not a single factor, but they, they represent a bucket of factors. Value is this idea that like a free cash flow to price. So this idea that there's a certain amount of free cash flow a company has, and if, if the price is very high, then that's less attractive than a company that has high free cash flow. The price is very low. So fairly intuitive. And you can rank all the companies of interest in that context. So that's a value factor. This idea that something over price is a value factor. Quality is essentially a measure of profitability, for instance, so gross profits to total assets. Again, it's a ratio to kind of normalize to the size of a company. But again, you can rank the more gross profits compared to the total assets you have, obviously, the better the company you think it will be. And so you can rank on these things. Momentum is, is actually very different. It's, it's basically saying, if I look at a particular company and I see the trend in its returns over the last year or six months or however long you want to look for that trend, it again indicates to you that trend should continue. That's the underlying thesis. So then you can rank companies based on these trends. Now, the idea is then you have these three factors, these three buckets that all sort of look alike in terms of within a bucket. And you can create portfolios of each of these and then add them all together. So you're essentially averaging across all of these what we call characteristics of value, quality, momentum, or characteristics that you can average across. Now, you can be bespoke in the amount of weight you put to each one of these. And, and that, of course, is part of the secret sauce for some quantitative investors. But in the end, you end up with an aggregate portfolio. So everything gets squished together and you have an aggregate view. And this then gives you, you know, the ones with the highest ranking is the one you want to go long. The ones with the lowest ranking are the ones you want to go short. And so this is a quantitative, I would say a very typical or traditional quantitative investment strategy. You can use it in equities, you can use it in macro, you can use it in credit. And talk to us a little bit about this idea of smart beta. Is this encapsulated in what you just <laughs> described? Is this a whole yeah. other level? So what happened there was... 
this is a fascinating story. It's the evolution of quant in some ways, maybe not for the better, but so BGI and AQR and places like this, were building these factor portfolios and adding, you know, using them for investing. But just in the way I describe them to you, I think it should become clear that they're not so sophisticated that they can't actually can't remember them and walk out the door and go to some other place and reconstruct them. So there's this diffusion process where quantitative ideas became fairly well known in the investment industry. In fact, you know, people published articles about them, obviously, in the Journal of Finance. They made books about them. So what happened was that providers of, of product sort of took away from the hedge fund world, the quantitative hedge fund world, and said, well, look, I can just repackage these very same things and sell them back to whoever wants them, whether it's retail, whether it's institutions, at a very, very cheap price. Because again, the process of building this is very, very systematic. You can have a computer do most of the work. They rebranded this smart beta. So they took something which was considered proprietary and exceptional and alpha, which is this idea of being able to beat expected returns with it, comes back and says, okay, well, now this is something very commoditized. I can sell it to everyone. This, this became the smart beta revolution where everyone is buying exposures to things, whether it's price to earnings, free cash flow price, whether it's momentum, whether it's quality factors. The smart beta just became a way to sort of justify that this thing exists in the context of, of a particular type of regression framework. And, and, and quants like to talk about things in regression framework. So it was just a natural way to, to start you know, marketing the product. I think it's had, you know, I think it's had some fairly dramatic effects on people's view of quantitative investing because it looks very commoditized at this point. In fact, in the process of sort of talking about what I do to other institutional investors, they, one particular very smart investor came back and said, here's how I view smart beta life cycle. Do you, do you have a second? I can, I can read it to you. It's absolutely yeah, hilarious. Go in. Okay. So there's 15 steps. I know it sounds like a lot, but it'll go quick. One thing I want to point out is quants basically talk about backtests, which is this idea that I could simulate an investment strategy and show you the returns that would have had. And you should feel very comfortable then that this thing will perform like that in the future, which of course, everyone should know that that's probably not the way it's going to play out. But instead, the backtesting is part of the whole, the whole process of quantitative investing. So step one, launch product with amazing backtest. Okay. Looks great. Two, experience underperformance. Okay. Terrible. Three, show clients that similar underperformance has shown up in the backtest. So it's just statistical noise. Four, experience more underperformance. Five, show clients that the level of underperformance has never appeared in the backtest, so it's sure to revert. Six, experience more underperformance. Seven, publish a paper. This is critical because only smart people can publish papers, and smart people are good at investing. Eight, experience more underperformance. Nine, tell clients that the strategy requires patience and that the backtest results are more indicative of the future than the live results actually are. Ten, experience more underperformance. 11. Claim that smart beta providers as a whole have overpromised but that you are absolved of any such wrongdoing because you are criticizing everybody else yourself. 12. Experience more underperformance. 13. Tell clients that you are a good diversifier since you are underperforming while others are outperforming. 14. Experience some outperformance, but not nearly enough to make up for inception to date underperformance. Declare victory. That's sort of the view now of, of the allocators to quantitative investing. Now, is that one of the reasons we're seeing what I've heard you call a quant winter that started as of you know 2018 or so? Yes, this is exactly right. This is, this is the result of investors who put money into quantitative strategies, particularly institutional investors, are quite frustrated. So 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, this idea of value, quality, momentum just didn't perform well. And it, and it was broad-based across most of the, the quantitative investing universe. 
And talk to us a little bit more about the commoditization, because what is needed for that to revert? Some new innovation, I suppose, that would need to come and disrupt the market, correct? Yeah, exactly. So actually, this was the the choice that faced me on the research side of things. I said, I looked at this and I said, look, Goldman Sachs has shown up at my door, offered to sell me this thing. And this was prior to 2017. So in expectation, something this commoditized and other providers too, whether it's Vanguard, for instance. So, so should I expect outperformance based on these things? And I made the decision that no, I, I don't think that this is likely to continue the, the performance we've had in the past. We need to do something different. And then to do something different, you obviously have to invest time, energy, and resources, which is never an easy decision and an ongoing concern, particularly of, of an asset manager. So you dug into some research. I'm curious what you found when you were assessing people like Buffett, Klarman, Soros, etc. You've written about this underlying theme that you found that came from studying those three in particular. So I'm curious, what was the thread that kind of, you know, that kind of tied those three together? The idea was you had successful investors. These were folks who had a long track record, had shown resiliency um, across many market conditions or market cycles. So the question really was, from the quantitative perspective, what we've been told always or, or intuited ourselves or argued amongst ourselves was that folks like these shouldn't be successful by definition. Why? Because they don't have a massively diversified portfolio. They don't have three, four, 5,000 stocks in their portfolios. They're actually very focused on understanding companies at, at a very detailed level, but at a company level. They're not, they're not thinking about these things as, you know, if I back tested this idea, would it, would it give me a great result? They're really saying, hey, this is a company. This, this has a purpose. It exists to do something. And is it a good thing? And that can be applied to macro as well. This doesn't have to be just company, but applied to credit, it can be applied to, to currencies, whatever it is that you can really sort of dig in, try to understand what it is the real economy is doing, and then trying to understand what investors think about it. And so that was a, as it became more and more evident to me that what we had was commoditized on the quant side, it became more and more evident to me, as I said, that, that in the fundamental space, there is, there's a lot of rich understanding of, of, of what markets should be doing or could be doing or probably or might be doing. And as a quant, you've kind of ignored that channel, right? You may, you may have a superficial interest in it. So for me, it was, well, if we're going to look someplace new, there's this whole body of work, which we've disregarded because it isn't statistically interesting. What is it? We have some shining examples of folks who have outperformed the markets for a long time. We should learn something. And that was, you know, it's a bit of humble pie, right? It's basically being able to say, hey, you know, I've adjusted whether it's the applied math background, the PhD, plus all the statistical analysis we did, Marcus will step back and, and maybe somebody else can teach you something new. And that was, that was really provocative for us and for myself. What in your experience did you see as sort of the shortcomings of that quantitative approach? Is it that it, obviously it's needed for the scale we talked about in the pension right. arena, but is it applicable to use that same approach when you have a much smaller account? Does it break down anywhere along the way? The concept of quantitative investing, which, which is this idea that your returns or your risk-adjusted returns are a product of two things. One is the skill you have, which is intuitive to everybody, multiplied times the breadth or the number of attempts you have to express that skill. So, so think about it as gambling. If, if you can count cards, you go to Vegas, you get thrown out of the casino probably, but let's assume you don't get thrown out. You can count cards and you sit at a table and you play blackjack, single, you know, single deck blackjack. The advantage conferred upon you by counting cards is small. It's not huge. And so to really sort of reap the rewards of that ability to count, you have to sit at the table and play many, many, many hands. And so that's a, that's a perfect example of a combination of skill, which you have to beat the house, plus the number of times you can make those bets. 
it's kind of like gravity. Maybe you don't believe in it, but it, it's true. It exists. It's statistically closest thing to a proof you can do. And so particularly in investing. So that's a long way to say that those, that property of investing skill times the number of bets you make is true for anyone. Obviously, the trade-off between skill and the number of bets you make can be made, which is why we see fundamental investors taking very few bets, but they potentially have very high skill. Whereas potentially quantitative investors have the lower skill, but, but have many more bets. So you can kind of make up for those two things. If you think about it, like a, somebody trying to do this on their own, that number becomes really problematic. So the number of bets you have to make becomes, becomes almost unmanageable. If, if you're managing a portfolio with 10,000 securities in it, it's, it's almost impossible for an individual to do or do well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. 
Now, my understanding is, or at least originally, was around this idea of quant solving for the psychology aspect of investing, right? Kind of taking the human out of the equation, because as right. humans and our biases, we're prone to make so many mistakes and, and really shoot ourselves in the foot, so to speak, right? When, we, when it comes to investing. So how does the quant approach solve that exactly if you're trading so often, as you kind of mentioned? Obviously, there's trigger points that are being you're being alerted on to get out of a position at certain points. So what, talk to us a little bit what, about what that looks like. So there's a bunch of interesting points you brought up. The one is how do quants trade? And then the other thing is the biases when you are trading. You know, how, how do you, you know, the second judging, the triple judging, the quadruple, you know, looking back, you know, maximizing your regret. So yes, indeed, the, the systematic process, which is tied to this idea of a backtest, is to try and remove the biases. So, so you, you create the thesis and that thesis you believe in and make empirical evidence around it being properly vetted and properly um, tested. So like a scientific method almost. Then when you let it go, the impetus to interfere with that is, you know, is very low. So there's a big barrier to jumping in to try to overcome that. And so that, that prevents you from introducing your own biases. So certainly in your research, you could have introduced your own bias, which happens a lot, by the way, even in quantitative space. But getting the process moving does the thesis is to try and remove that, that effect. And also the, the idea that you can test things in time and geography. So you test an idea in Japan, you test it in the US, Canada, Australia, emerging markets, and you test it through multiple cycles or macro cycles. So, so that helps you build up a body of evidence that whatever you're doing probably doesn't have as much bias in it as you might have if you're just to do it off, off the side of your desk, off, off the top of your head. Now, that's the idea that you know, it can introduce... Some, some firewalls to the bias problem, but quants don't necessarily have to trade quickly. So when I said that there were, we made lots of bets, there are two ways to make lots of bets. One is to make lots of bets across many stocks, and one is to make lots of bets through time. So high-frequency traders might trade three stocks, but do it every millisecond. So that's a lot of bets. Right? As long as their bets are independent of each other, then that's a great way to bring into that, that idea of breadth. But there's another set of quants like myself and and Barclays Global Investors and AQR who are not really looking for speed. They're looking for understanding a thesis that says I can make not many bets in time, not too many bets in time, but a lot of bets across names. When I say cross-section, it's it's the company dimension or the time dimension. So the cross-section is the company dimension. Time dimension is a whole different game. And, And it turns out that you want to use as much of both as you can to increase the statistical significance. But I want to caution people not to think of this quants fast trading all the time. That's certainly like the, the flash boys and things like that became very popular and are easy to understand that speed is an advantage. But I would flip you over towards the fundamental space, which says speed isn't the only advantage, but being able to predict is another advantage. And fundamental investors do that all day, every day. And so perhaps a mix of those two ideas, which AQR and BGI sort of extended into, and I think that we extended further in that direction, is can you make things that are more forward-looking, more prognostication to, to help you with, and, and then use that in a less, less speed, but more future-looking? The primary reason you want to do that is because high-frequency trading has an impact on markets that erodes whatever returns you because it's just you're paying costs because you trade more and more and more. And markets are smart. As you trade fast and you trade more and you trade with more dollars, more and more people are attracted to that behavior in front running. So, so it, becomes, it becomes a sort of endless, sort of like a, a fruitless exercise to try to trade too fast because then you erode all the returns that you may have had by understanding something better. 
So if you really want scale, if you really want to trade a lot of assets, a lot of dollars, and this is why institutional investors are attracted to these ideas, is that you want to trade slower and you want to hold for longer. And then that reduces your, your, your frictions or your transaction costs. So quants have traditionally never really gone out as far into the future as fundamental investors. Fundamental investors really can get like Buffett. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe he's looking out 10 years, maybe seven years, five years. But they're really pushing the boundaries of forecasting it into the future. And quants have not done that to date. You know, the, these ideas of quality, value, momentum, you're looking at about a three-month horizon, maybe a little bit longer with some value factors, maybe six or seven, maybe eight months out. So you really left, they've really left behind this whole idea of long horizon forecasting. And I would argue that actually quite deeply that quants are not forecasting in the strong sense that, that a fundamental investor is doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And what's kind of coming to my mind is for, especially for retail investors, understanding these three-factor approaches and how they integrate together potentially. So if you wanted to build a portfolio with them, I'm wondering if any of the factors tend to overlap or if they're kind of all in their, in their own island. So for example, value and, and momentum almost seem to be opposites, right? Because you think of earlier companies like Facebook, Amazon, when they weren't generating any earnings, um, you could easily look at that on a value factor basis and say, well, this is a terrible investment, right? There's no earnings. Whereas you know, if you were a momentum trader, you would have done quite well. So, And value has been underperforming for a very long time. So obviously, if you're putting a packaging a portfolio together, probably want some exposure to each one. I'm not looking for financial advice, but I'm curious, is that a common approach even on the institutional side yeah. where they're trying to put a certain allocation towards the, these different buckets? So this is true even in, in our framework, which, which again deviates from quality by momentum. But to your point, that's exactly right. So this is diversification. Diversification is the number of stocks, but it's also the number of of ideas. So, so momentum is as an idea or value is an idea or quality is an idea. You want them ideally, what you'd like them to have is, is different return signatures through time. And so that what that allows you to do is build a portfolio which is robust across different regimes potentially. And so that's exactly what they're looking for. So diversification across factors is part of the, the lexicon for quantum investing. All right. So you've done all this research for many years now, and you've developed this economic framework that I'd love for you to kind of lay out for our audience and talk to us about how the elements of quality, value, and momentum kind of evolve from here. So as I said, the ideas behind quality, value, and momentum, my expectations on them had paled a bit. And I've also mentioned the fundamental investing world seemed like a very fruitful direction to go and look and learn from. And so that's that's exactly what myself and my, you know, my team, we did. We basically took a pause at the time. And we sat back and we said, let's try to re-examine some first principles, what it is that we actually believe that markets are doing. And let's see if that ends up back at quality value momentum again, which is fine, in case we've come for a circle. Or perhaps we end up in a different place. And luckily, I had a thought partner in this, his incredible human being, Frank Arachi. He's now the Senior Managing Director of Global Equities, Fundamental Equities for CPPIB. I've known him for 12 years almost now. And, and and he and I and my team at the time, we sat down and we started to think about, okay, first principle, what do we believe in? Well, first of all, what we said was, you know, markets are forward-looking. So price is a function of things expected in the future. They're not, it's not a function of things looking backwards, it's a thing looking forward. Of course, that expectation of some futures is predicated on all the information available to you now. So that includes sunspots, that includes how many people drive in the morning, it also includes everything. So it's a very general statement. But it's quite powerful. So it allows you to sort of ask other questions like, okay, well, 
if prices are very forward looking and prices change through time, then can I say something about the change in price? So it turns out you can. You can do some very simple manipulation of that idea and you combine some things together. And this gets a little bit on the mathy side, but what pops out is that, well, okay, changes in price, which are really returns, are described by some sort of attention based on surprise. So, and what I mean by surprise is I expected markets expected something in the future, they got something else, and then there's a correction. So this idea that that markets are forward-looking and they react to revealed information and the, the, the size of that reaction is based on the, the attention being paid to it. Again, these are very general concepts, but, but that's a really key part. So markets are always looking forward, looking to expect something, and then they have to react when that something shows up and it's different than what they expected. The next piece is, okay, well, how are we going to discover what those things are that markets are expecting? We want something that makes markets move a lot. I mean, big returns are available to you. We want it to move frequently, which is this idea of breadth. So we want many bets at the game. And we certainly don't want the game to go away, whatever it is that we're looking at. We don't want it to end in three years or five years. We want this thing, whatever this surprise thing is, we want it to go on forever. And the final piece was, well, capital markets aren't there. Casino. You know, capital markets are there to allocate capital. This is the Benjamin Graham, you know, the, the voting machine weighing machine, right? So this the short horizon, sure, maybe there's a voting component, but in the long horizon, capital markets are there to allocate capital efficiently. That was the foundation. So it's this idea of surprise, which is based on expectations. So what do markets expect? Can you understand that? This rearrangement once markets are surprised. This idea of surprise has to be worth the pursuit. And then the idea that, well, okay, let's look at fundamentals. And let's look at it through the lens of an empirical investor. So, so let's, let's think about this. Let's design a set of experiments to test all of these. And that's, that's really what we did. We basically spent, spent about a year and a half thinking about these ideas um, and testing them. The test is interesting. So bear with me for a second. So if you look at how fundamental investors invest, so you, you can go online, you can say, you know, look at KPIs, for instance. That's, that's kind of like the, 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 the language of a fundamental investor, KPIs. It, KPIs tell fundamental investors a lot about the state of a company, you know, what it's likely to do in the future. You can buy KPI libraries, by the way, there are thousands of them, thousands. And so assume you take all of those KPIs and you say, well, I'm going to be the perfect fundamental investor. I'm going to assume that I can predict KPIs perfectly at any horizon, you know, one year, two years, three years. Then I'm going to take those predictions and I'm going to put them in a backtest framework. I'm going to basically be like a quant. I'm going to create a quant portfolio out of these ideas. And I'm going to run a back test and see what happens. See, see if any of these ideas create really lucrative portfolios. Interestingly enough, most of those ideas don't produce lucrative portfolios. Before you go too far down that rabbit hole and say, well, you know, that's absurd. But as a quant, we were like, oh, of course, we knew this. You know, fundamental investors don't know anything. So, of course, this is obvious. And I'll come back to that because that's actually quite arrogant. And we had to eat crow on that. But what we did find was that various measures of cash flow across different horizons were incredibly powerful, meaning if you could predict these cash flowy type variables in a portfolio context, you almost achieve perfect foresight on returns themselves, which is a remarkable concept. It means that, oh my goodness, maybe fundamentals, cash flowy fundamentals and returns are, are tightly coupled together, are tied together. I don't want to say causally linked because that sets up a whole argument about specific mathematical definitions of causality, but but let's just say for the sake of argument, there's a causal linkage between these cash flow growth, cash growth of cash flow through time and returns. There's a horizon component to this. In a short horizon, not so much. Right? That tie to returns in a one-month horizon is not so strong. 
that tie to returns at a three-year horizon is almost, is almost 90%. So you're really starting to see this interesting interplay between, again, the Benjamin Graham, the voting versus weighing, that in the long horizon, these growths of cash flows really describe a, a causal relationship that markets are weighing on constantly. In the short horizon, there's a bunch of other stuff going on that, that don't necessarily, at least in the variables we looked at, explain returns. So this is remarkable. So the question to ask then is, set aside quality, value, and momentum for a moment, which have none of that forecasting power at all, like not even close to that. These other things, wow, I mean, we couldn't have accidentally found these because they're so close to returns themselves. They have to be statistically significant. There's, there's no human bias that could have introduced that. And by the way, it works again globally across all time. So then, oh, well, these seem like really rich things to understand. So kudos to fundamental investors. They're really thinking of discounted cash flow models. I think that's the right thing to do. But again, all these KPIs are useless. So the question was, as a quant, can we predict these things? And this makes all the difference. Right? So now we, we lean into the predicting realm of things. And how do we do prediction? Which opened up a whole new world for us. So then, right? well, what do you use to predict? You have tools. right? So regression is linear regression is one tool. But everyone listening to your podcast has heard of the AI revolution. So linear regressions are, are linear, meaning they're very simple relationships that they can capture. Machine learning and, and AI are capturing very, very complicated relationships. The problem is with machine learning and AI is that it requires a lot of data to help sort of organize themselves to, to pick out complicated relationships. The worst thing you can do is to give a bunch of very little data to a machine learning algorithm and tell it to figure stuff out because it'll figure out relationships that aren't really true. We call this overfitting. The problem we found was in trying to forecast returns with machine learning, which, which has been done by many, many organizations. I think some had some success. I think very few have had success. Is that the complexity of returns themselves don't lend themselves to scarce amounts of data. So you really are operating at a dangerous end of the, like the deep end of the, like a dangerous part of the swimming. I don't know if that's a real expression. Probably mixing my metaphors there. It's, it's a dangerous part of the ocean. Because you have this thing which is very dynamic, returns are very dynamic, and you have this very you have this very limited pool of observations to train your machine, your nonlinear machine learning algorithm on to try to predict returns. And so this creates a problem, right? So if, if you start to use this technology, it's kind of like giving somebody who's untrained a weapon to somebody who's untrained. You know, it's quite dangerous. So and so what's happened is this there's been a, a bunch of folks who a bunch of managers who tried to use it with disastrous results. So in sample, it looks like you know, when you try to test, it looks great. When you try it live, it looks terrible. I think one way that, that has been short-circuited is that in the, in the really high-frequency space, again, you go back to lots of observations. Every millisecond is a thing. And I think you've seen some success. You've seen, because again, because the numbers of observations are really, really high, it gives the machine learning something to play with. On the other hand, in the long horizon, you're talking about three months, six months, three years, there's just not a lot of independent observations. And so the machine learning really struggles to, to create good forecasts that you would expect to work out of samples. So when you go live. But what we observed was quality, the, the properties of cash flows is not the same as returns. While those things, remember, we've said are, seem to be causally linked together, they're a very different beast. They're not being impacted by the speed of human thought. They're being impacted by the speed of human interactions which is buying and selling and producing goods and services, which is just not as fraught with chaos. And so by structuring a problem where we're trying to predict a fundamental outcome, you basically change the dynamics of the thing you're trying to predict. And I think fundamental investors really knew that. They basically said, look, price is really, really hard. 
But if we assume this co-integrating relationship between price and fundamentals, let's, let's focus on the fundamentals. And again, we'll think about it in the longer horizon. So absolutely brilliant. If we set about to replicate that behavior, let's, okay, let's do this forecasting exercise. And this thing turns out to be well-behaved. So the fundamentals turns out to be well-behaved relative to, to returns. So we started the march down the machine learning path. You know, we started linear stuff. You know, we slowly increased the amount of degrees of freedom that this thing was allowed to play with. And then we said, okay, we're going yeah, to let the dogs out. We're going we're to try machine learning. But again, not, not completely crazy because we're saying we're going to focus it on particular variables related to real economic fundamentals. And that started to work. It's like, oh, this is really interesting. But again, we never achieved anything close to perfect foresight on these variables, on, on these cash flow type variables. So we were, we were really struggling. Okay, how do we get our accuracy up? So, okay, we did something interesting here. The returns that we can generate with portfolios like this when we backtest them don't look commercially viable. Like no one would pay for these things. Now what? Okay, a couple of things. One is, first of all, we probably, put, we probably should put really interesting things into the machine learning process something we know has value in forecasting the future. And here's where I come back to my eating crow moment. Oh, KPIs might work. Bingo. So now you start putting in KPIs into a forecasting problem for fundamentals. And oh my goodness, all of this fundamental knowledge in the world was not for nothing. I mean, this, this, is, this is a huge compendium of human you know, intellect. People have spent time denoising business models. They look at business models and they say, let's throw away the insignificant things and look at the significant things. And so fundamental investors have really spent a, a lifetime understanding how certain variables interact with each other within a certain business model. Once you bring those into the forecasting exercise, you really start to see a lift in the forecasting accuracy. Now, we went back to the fundamental investors that we'd spoken to about this. Of course, they're like, oh, yeah, you idiot. I mean, we never said these things had value in forecasting terms. We said KPIs had a lot to say about cash flows, and cash flows have a lot to say about returns. And so as a quad, basically, where was I? I'd basically gone down the yellow brick road and ended up being a complete believer in fundamental investing. And actually, it was this idea of surprise. Remember, I talked about surprise. Well, if you give machine learning a forecasting problem, it's going to spend a lot of its time and energy and budget. I mean, you give it a certain number of variables, a certain number of observations to work with to help calibrate it. It's going to end up giving you a lot of things that are already well known, which is unfortunate, right? It may do a great job, but it's telling you stuff you already knew. So, okay, well, that's not good. Let's add some structure. Surprise is the structure. So you have to understand what markets expect, subtract that from what the outcome will be, which is surprise, and then force the machine learning to focus on the stuff that's not known, which goes back to this idea that surprise is what defines returns. And so, but we did it in this way. It was through a fundamental channel. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. 
How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. Now, surprises can happen either up or down, right? So what I'm kind of curious about is there's been a lot of surprises, especially in the last couple of years. And you know, when we had the original COVID market crash, that was obviously a surprise. And then there was a surprise to the upside following thereafter. So how would a machine learning approach have performed through some event like that, both up and down? So to your point, expectations are not a single beast, right? There's, there's multiple cohorts of, of investors out there investing in a particular style. And so they, they have their own expectations. To avoid being stuck with one set of expectations, which can be right or can be wrong, in which case you kind of limited your ability to earn returns if you're always fighting one set of cohorts when another one is actually dominating price. You have to understand the, the, the heterogeneous nature of investors. So Bridgewater talks about this a lot as well. But We've internalized these ideas very deeply ourselves. Is that even if we take a very simple example, there's a dominant view in the market which is expressed by the dollars being invested in a particular view. So let's say, try you say, sales growth is going to be high for this company. And there's a bunch of people like you, and you all put in a lot of money into that view. Well, if that were the only view in the market, price would shoot up, it would go crazy. But we know there's a set of people who disagree with you in the market, and they'll invest a certain amount of money 
to disagree with you. And they'll impact price as well. So you end up with this equilibrium state, which gets created in price, where there's a certain amount going one direction, a certain amount going, and there's certainly one that's dominating, but that dominance is not so severe that price becomes crazy. It doesn't, doesn't go one direction or another very, very, very rapidly. The chaos of cohorts. Right. The chaos of cohorts. I like that. So you want to understand because not everybody is going to be right. At some point, there's a truth moment where your bet is marked to market. The contrarian view is marked to market. And typically, markets figure it out shortly before the reveal. So there's a lot of correction that goes on, but there's a marking to market. And in that moment is where you see returns becoming really, really interesting. So in the case where you were right, let's say you were the dominant view, let's call it consensus for, for argument's sake, then the contrarian view has to correct itself. So it would have been losing money all along the way because it was you were dominating price. Price was moving against their view. Contrarians look at you and they say, oh my goodness, you were right. They switch directions and they, they match your position. You would get an extra bump at the end of the day. Returns would go your way. And so what you would see for Trey, what you would see for your portfolio, if you were betting or your, your stock position, but you could extrapolate to portfolio of these, you would see an, a slow diffusion of returns heading your way. You'd have a, a nice sort of ramp up in returns. And then followed by once the, the, the information was revealed, maybe some slight bump, still some post-announcement drift. The person who was betting against you, of course, would lose all along the way. Terrible. But on the other hand, maybe I was right and Trey was wrong. Even though, and you dominated your price returns up to a certain, up until just before announcement, you would say, oh my goodness, I need to switch my position. You would flip your position to match mine. And in that flipping, you would move all your price, all your, all your dollars towards my position and change the, the path of return. So for me, as a contrarian investor, I would have been losing money. And then as you push and you realize that you needed to switch, I would have, my returns would have shot up. And then again, a post-announcement drift where I would have had a decay. Now, what's really cool about this is we've just described to you the return signature of two of the factors that we talked to you about earlier, which was momentum and value. So as a consensus being right, you would have seen in the impact of price, people following your, your view and piling in. At the very end, contrarians would have realized you were right. You would have had an extra bump and then a decay. This is like a very nice momentum-shaped pattern. Conversely, when contrarians are right, you see this negative return followed by a pop in return space and a decay. That's a value signature. And so we made full circle. We came back and we said, oh my goodness, this idea of surprise, we've already evidenced the different quantitative investing strategies. One is value and one is momentum. These represent different cohorts in the market betting differently. And yet there's a convergence at the end. Now, the idea is we can measure both of them and have a better forecast in the future. We can arbitrage both, both sets of cohorts. And so you end up with a beautifully diversified set of return streams based on who you're arbitraging, who you're trying to bet against. And the probability is you, in, the, in a cross-sectional sense, you're getting it right in multiple dimensions. When I hear you talk about that, what's happening for me is just this resolving to buying and holding because you know i think so often we're not really thinking about the cohorts in play yeah. and a lot of people are just thinking hey it's it's zero sum it's right or wrong it's me and this guy on the other end or gal on the other end and this is the trade but we're all sitting around the same poker table but we're not one person's playing no. poker the other person's paying, playing craps the other person's, you know it's just like there's this is wash or this pool of different people at different time horizons with different strategies yes. that is creating so much noise that just makes me want to sit back and say, look, this is why I don't want to look at my screen for 10 years. That's right. In, in which case, you know, in that sense, you're just 
buying the equity risk premium, just buying an index fund allows you to coast along with all that noise and ignore it and just get the value of being long in equity with a group of equities, which are likely to go up over time. So that kind of sounds like a robo-advisor to some degree, but robo-advisors though, they're just looking at your age and your time horizon and your risk tolerance, et cetera, et cetera. And they just say, here's your package. It's not very active beyond that, as I understand it. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So the activity is in what's the weight of you know fixed income versus equities or commodities or whatever yet. That's their active bet. The big addition for institutional investors in particular is that they're looking to increase the beyond the, the asset allocation, they're looking to increase their returns because they have obligations. They have like Canada Pension Plan Investment Board that has obligations in the future. So being able to increase beyond just passive exposure to or semi-passive exposure to equity to risk premium provides some extra juice to help cushion the, the blow that they're going to have in terms of meeting their obligations. In fact, when you go to a pure long short portfolio, you're not even really doesn't really even matter that you're in equities or or fixed income or commodities. Not in the sense that you still need to do security selection. You have to understand the underlying system that you're working in. But really, you're not trying to harness the risk premium within those those asset classes. You're really just adding one versus it could be anything, right? You don't really care as long as you're as long as you're right, right? As long as you're getting those bets and the numbers of table, the numbers of times at the table is, is, is large. But what's so enticing about this approach is, you know, the only other reference point I kind of have on it that comes to mind is Jim Simons and his fund. And you hear yeah. about these outsized returns that are just in like 60% plus a year for 20 years. Or th- so it's really enticing and it draws you in. But as I understand it, that approach also had limitations, or at least they found some sort of optimized scale that said, you know, look, we're only going to run a fund of this size and we're not letting in any more money. So talk to us, is that a limiting factor? Do we hit a ceiling with the approach that you're describing as well? Yeah. So so I think actually any investment approach will hit a ceiling. So there's only so much you can move markets, move around in markets before you move the market. And that then you know that you've lost whatever edge you're going to have. So the bigger you get, the, the less nimble you are in terms of being able to express your positions without people being able to, to follow you or front run you. So Rentech, they hit a limit. And so they, they capped out the amount of capital that could go in. To be fair to Rentech, you know, I mean, uh, you know, they, they certainly invested a lot of time, energy, and money into building machinery, working with data. It's very expensive. It's only natural that at some point they have to close and, and to maintain the, the returns that they're trying to and be able to compensate themselves for the amount of effort they put into that. That's, that's true with any strategy. Fundamental strategies as well, right? They'll reach a capacity, albeit if they're working in large cap space because of liquidity, they'll reach it later than, than say, a quant who's potentially operating at, at smaller scale or in smaller stocks than, than they are exclusively. Does that make sense? That does make sense. When you were talking about machine learning, one other question that came to my mind was around the inputs and Comparing it or juxtaposing it with the robo advisor approach, this machine learning approach sounds much more complex and nuanced. And I'm wondering if is it capturing headlines and news on certain companies? Is it incorporating all kinds of like this plethora yes. of data from all over the world? <laughs> yes. So so we take in a ton of data. Our, our, look, our our costs are huge for computing data, and I'm sure it is with Rentech and Two Sigma. It's it's really you know, and in some ways. We could use more data. So we're always looking for other data sets because this helps inform our forecasting exercise. And I think you can't play in this without a ton of resources. Like as an individual, you could never compete at this scale for these things. It's an arms race. Perhaps there's an arms race for distance to 
to the exchange, which is high frequency players played in for a long time. And that's sort of been tapped out, right? We don't, we don't hear about people building any more microwave towers, or maybe we tower, but not as many as you know, the Hummingbird Project or whatever. It's not, you know, it's not the thing anymore. Prediction is the thing. That prediction is going to create a new set of constraints and arms race around data and all likelihood and around talent to do machine learning and around frameworks. As I said, how do you take all of these very powerful things and focus them on the way that, that has a high probability of success? We found one way, perhaps others will find others, but that process of understanding is very hard. It takes many years of experience to understand how this plays out. And so it's, it's an intimidating and daunting thing to think about it. We haven't sort of grown into it over the course of 15 years of your life to, to sort of internalize all of this and understand it in sort of coherence. Well, what's coming to my mind is sort of like DeepMind's AlphaGo example. They're projecting out these probability trees, essentially, and each thread has a certain weight, I guess. And, and then as it proves out one position or the other, it's learning that and predicting. And I'm guessing this is not that dissimilar as far as the approach where yeah. it's there's laying out these probability trees, if that's the right vernacular, but good enough. Okay. <laughs> Bear with so, me. You're totally right. So I've spent some time talking with DeepMind here and there and the folks who, who work there and researchers and things. And yes, you're exactly right. I mean, AlphaGo is actually quite beautiful in many, many ways, almost exquisite. You know, good for them. But they, they were able to harness a concept that we can't in the, in the, in the world of investing. So they, they can create data. So they can play many, many games. They create this adversary relationship between different cohorts. Right? They can create cohorts who play one way and another way and another way. And they can force them to play each other at super high frequency and learn and learn and learn and learn. And so this is, this is ideal for machine learning or AI. On the investing side, we just have to sit and watch paint dry, right? You just have to wait a thousand years for more observations for more cohorts, particularly if you're going directly for returns because the dynamics of returns themselves are so problematic. So you have to find a different, you have to provide structure for machine learning in that context, which we haven't seen. You know, don't want to take anything from deep mind, but, but in the context where you have limited observations, it's, it's a much, it's a very, very hard game. Uh, but but you're, you're exactly right. We are looking at probabilities. We're not looking with certainty. And so that's how our portfolios evolve. So we look to the future at various horizons. And we say, the probabilities are changing at various horizons. Because you can imagine companies being successful in the short term and not in the long term, vice versa. And so we're playing this probabilistic system and letting our ideas sort of flow into portfolios that try to capture these through time. And it's quite complicated. Well, to add to the complexity, you also have our own government now creating more and more liquidity to enter the markets in, in really unforeseen ways. And so I'm wondering, how does the computer accommodate for that sort of outlying <laughs> yeah. factor? So for instance, Robinhood, that was a, they created a whole different world for retail investors. It's a free trader and lots of access to, to leverage. But remember, those are cohorts. You know, they're you know, not... So there are already work cohorts. There's, there's hedge funds or mutual funds or ETFs. There are flows in things. Now we just have another one, which is very, very strong. So if you try to imagine there's a cohort of one cohort, which is we're simply buying it, but one cohort of retail investors, where would they line up on these expectations of future events? And if you're better than they are, then obviously they're arbitrageable. I think the deeper question is, will retail look more and more like GameStop shenanigans or will it look like fundamental investors? Will it look like so where would they where would they end up and how would they impact prices? Because if they end up in a GameStop sort of situation where fundamentals don't matter, then then it's problematic for our strategy. It doesn't mean that it's impossible for us to work with, but if they dominate the market over all horizons, then that's a problem. What I would 
hypothesizes what we've seen so far is that's a short horizon thing again, right? So this, this idea that voting machine, weighing machine, we're seeing a big impact on the voting side of the equation through retail flow. Uh, will that stay that way? I don't know. It'd be interesting to watch. But, but again, they're a cohort. We can look at what they do. Now, talk a little bit about your strategy because now you have created your own firms, Delphia, and you've implemented the strategy. Is it meeting your expectations? Yes, it's meeting our expectations because we're seasoned at this. We look at our back tests, we look at our thesis, and we say, this is what we think we should expect out of sample going forward as we invest. And, and we've met those. And I've been quite delighted that we haven't run into the things that we know are out there. So when, even when you look at a back test, there are certain conditions in the world where every strategy is likely to, maybe not at the same time, but every strategy has a weakness. And, and the way I look at it, it's like, we've had a nice nine-month run. We know there are bad states of the world out there. None of them have shown up in that nine months. You know, we know they're there. It's kind of like some horrible venomous spider running around. You can step on it any time, but, but it hasn't happened yet. And so we're quite happy. It's been, been a joy to watch that. You know, I'm tempted to ask you about, as you were kind of entering into the finance space, what books and resources really inspired you? Most people default to like, you know, intelligent investor security analysis. But with you, I'm like, it's probably Moneyball or something that like, you know, but, but what resources have made like the biggest impact on you that maybe others can at least grab for themselves? By the way, the, the Moneyball is, is hilarious. So we call this process of trying to understand what moves markets. We call it Moneyball. Obviously, it has a nice ring to it, right? Yeah. So, so there are two books which I look at as foundational for me and, and, and I have my team read them, obviously. So one is um, Active Portfolio Management by Richard Arnold and Ron Kahn, which which doesn't talk, tell you anything about you know, forecasting the actual returns, but it tells you about all about portfolio construction. So assume you have some, re- some forecasts, how do you put portfolios together? And this, this book was, it was seminal in, in the field and continues to be sort of the, the Bible or the, the rock on which fundamental investing, I mean, quantitative investing is built upon. The other one, surprisingly, is, is John Cochran has a book called Asset Pricing, which talks about you know, a very generalized and, and quite beautiful framework how anything can be priced, whether it's a pair of tennis shoes or wine or, or equities or fixed income insurance. So again, hopefully you can see the connectivity. You know, that, that view of the world is very aligned with me now and our team and our investing style. But in the context, again, of the active portfolio management book, which is, which is this portfolio construction handbook. Now, is your strategy only available to institutions? Or what, what does the outside capital look like? So we have, we have two sets of strategies. One set is available to institutional investors. Another strategy has just become recently available for retail. The reason you have to create separate strategies is that the legal requirements for investing with institutions are very different than for retail. And so um, I'd love to be able to say that we can take exactly what we do for institutional investors and give it to retail, but, but you know, and, and, you know, the law will allow you to do that. Perhaps there's been some evolution in the last year and SEC regulations. So perhaps there's some things you can do a closer approximation to what you can do for institutions. I would say the biggest difference is that one uses leverage, is pure long short. That seems to be suitable for institutional investors who can handle that kind of approach. And then if you go to the other side, you think about long only or lightly levered products that are available for retail. But as I said, there's things are evolving. So perhaps there's some way to, to make one available for the other in the US. The retail side is only available in the US. Institutional side is available to anyone in the world. Very cool. Well, Jonathan, this has been a real pleasure and really enlightening. I would love to do this again sometime soon. But before I let you go, I definitely want to give you the opportunity to hand off to the listeners where they can learn more about you and, and your research and Delphia and, and anything else you want to share. 
We have a website, Delphia.com. We'll be creating a, an institutional website as well in the near future. There'll be papers that we, we think are thought processes, primarily on the institutional side. There's always some interesting tidbits about our thesis on the, on the retail side. I would say just look forward to, you know, we're just getting started. We're only nine months in. I'll be talking in to, to folks in different channels shortly in the near future. Thank you for having I mean, this, this is very cool. I mean, you have a great podcast. You have some really incredible people out here. It's an honor to, to spend an hour with you. Well, I appreciate it. Let's do it again soon. All right. All right, everyone. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And remember that we always love to hear your feedback. You can always reach me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And if you're just starting out, go ahead and Google TIP Finance. You can find all the courses and resources we built for you there. And with that, we will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.